Welcome to Managing Marketing, a weekly podcast where we discuss the issues and opportunities facing marketing, media and advertising with industry thought leaders and practitioners. Today, I'm sitting down with Nick Hand, a hands-on, commercially savvy finance director and a senior management consultant at Trinity B3. Welcome back, Nick. Thanks, Darren. Thanks for having me. Well, welcome back because you've been here before, haven't you? I have, yeah. Five or six years ago. Um, did a lot of work in that uh, that, that 12 months. Um, very enjoyable. And when the opportunity came back, I thought, sounds too good to me. And in the meantime, you've continued a career that started, well, let's say last millennium, but you're not that old. I'm, I'm you know, Late last millennium, late Thank last you. century. Uh as a finance director, primarily in advertising, you know, this is after you finished a degree and you're uh, in uh, accounting and, and commerce. That's right. What made you go into advertising? Yeah, because accounting is one of those uh, careers that people, you know, parents want their children to go into, but I'm not sure they wanted them to go into advertising. No, um, although my parents were quite uh, happy. When I graduated university, I just wanted a job um, and I interviewed at an advertising agency, not knowing much about the industry at all. Um, and uh, they offered me the job as the assistant accountant to the finance director. And I loved it. And yeah. uh, just being in that, that environment around creative people, uh, trying to make money from something that's intangible, just really appealed to, uh, to, to my personality. And I've stuck with it ever since. And done very well. I mean, you've worked for some amazing uh, agencies in media, creative, uh, PR. You know, so it's not like some people get caught up just doing media, uh, for instance, or creative. You've worked across the range of agencies, haven't you? Yeah, I think I was lucky. The agency I joined out of university was old school in that they uh, were a full-service creative and media agency. So I was exposed to, to both disciplines, if you will, very early on and so uh, later in my career when jobs presented themselves uh, with bigger organizations uh, I was able to parlay that experience uh, into working for a big multinational media agency or a big multinational creative agency uh, as, as well as at various times the, some of the independents uh, as well in, in both disciplines so I think I was lucky that I had that grounding early that I was able to, uh, to, to move between the two um, later in life. Now, when you started, you know, it was the era when the Media Commission was being faded out, wasn't or phased out. Uh, there'd been the uh, the big hearing with the ACCC and uh, gone to the, uh, I think it was the High Court, and they decided that agencies shouldn't be collecting uh, commissions on behalf of uh, the clients and the media owners. But... It were, that was an era when agencies found it very easy to make profit, didn't they? I mean, if you're getting a commission. Yeah, they did. And, and funnily enough, I, mean, I, I, I suppose clients are a little bit more informed these days, but back then, clients didn't see it as an extra cost. Uh, they said, you're going to get 10% commission from the media agent? That's, that's, that's fabulous. Um, that's not factored into our budget. So it means I'm going to end up paying you less because I'd already was going to pay that cost anyway. So... Um, obviously, things have changed and, and, as I say, clients have got a little bit more informed and sophisticated in that regard. Um, but it was almost, 
at that time with the mediums that we were advertising in, it was almost set and forget in, in that regard. The client didn't have to worry about it. Uh, and I suppose also the agencies that I was working with early on, um, we weren't necessarily dealing with marketing directors. We were dealing directly with CEOs and managing directors and owners of those businesses. And they um, perhaps had a little bit more leeway to, to, to make those sorts of decisions. And uh, even though they were business owners, they weren't necessarily counting the pennies like uh, a, a marketing director um, who's got that fiduciary duty to uh, tell their owners has to do these days. Yeah, I wonder if it's a fiduciary duty or whether it's because as a CEO or a business owner, that is your marketing budget, you know, and so I'm going to spend it. Whereas a marketer, say a CMO, a head of marketing, is given a budget and they're much more focused on maximising what they actually buy with that budget. So they're looking at how can I nip and tuck the edges to get more in a way. And, I, and 10% is, let's be honest, is a decent chunk of money out of media. Absolutely. And I, I think you're right. I think the, uh, the the business owners that I dealt with early in my career, they were, certainly they, they knew the value of a dollar, but they knew the value of the dollar and how that investment was going to um, pay back for their business. Now, I'm not saying that the marketing directors of today don't understand that. Of course they do. Um, but I think uh, the owner operator can be a bit more, can take more risks. I yeah. say. And, and take a bigger <clears throat> picture for the business. Yeah. You know, whereas the marketer literally has the budget. Yes. You know, that's their marketing budget and they have to make that work. Yeah. I'm interested in, you know, because obviously having a commercial training, a degree, you're also a, a CPA. Mm-hmm. Right? That's and, right. And so that's really just a measure of ongoing uh, career learning, isn't it? Keeping up to date and uh, and developing your commercial savvy. It, that's exactly right. It's it's a designation that requires you to do ongoing professional development. Um, yeah. And you get graded on that every year. And if you don't keep yourself abreast of what's going on, you, you potentially lose your designation. So um, that's why businesses look for a CPA or a CA um, to, to, to run the finances of their business because they know that uh, there's a, uh, those people need to keep on top of their, uh, their um, knowledge and mm. uh, will, uh, continuing to want to learn. But to be a finance director for an agency, you don't need to have that, do you? Um, I think you do because there's more than one way to skin a cat. Um, and as a finance director that's looking to um, lead an agency of the future, quote unquote, uh, you need to know what's what's the the way that we've been doing things might not necessarily be the best way to do it. So I want to find what is the best way to do it um, that's that's going to be relevant to where that business is now and where it's going to be in three or four years time. So I, I think it is important to keep that. Um, professional development up. No, look, I was being unkind because I've just, <laughs> in, in the last 20 years, I've met a few, uh, let's call them finance directors of agencies that I'm not even sure they have an accounting right. qualification. You know, but you could technically become an accountant in a fi- an agency. Look, I think you could. You could certainly, for me, there's two types of accountants. There's those that make sure that the numbers add up correctly, and that's very important. You, yeah. you, you need that. And there are those that will actually 
take a, a commercial point of view and look at, right, well, um, how can I ensure that the return that this business is generating uh, on the income that we um, derive is, is maximised? Uh, and, uh, you know, I think most businesses, if it was me, I'd want someone that can do both. Yeah, and especially because since the loss of uh, media commissions, agencies have been under the pump as far as generating revenue, haven't they? They have. Uh, it was interesting. I was uh, thinking about this the other day when you asked me to, to, to come on and we just talked about it before we went live. The number of independent agencies that are out there, the competition, I think, has never been greater uh, in this business um, and it's a, it's a buyer's market and uh, advertisers and, and marketers out there have got a, their choice of the very best practitioners mm. and uh, competition is uh, means it's very difficult to differentiate differentiate yourself from um, from the other agencies but it also means that getting a premium um, on price and, and therefore the revenue is is really hard yeah. I remember uh, Mark Buckman, when he was CMO at uh, Combank, he made the comment that the problem with the industry is there's just too many agencies, you know, and that the choices are, are unbelievable. And in many ways, had almost commoditized the marketplace because there are so many people willing to do whatever you want at whatever price that you're willing to pay. Yeah, I, I think that's spot on. Makes it hard, though. Well, it as does. A business, well, from a business perspective, it, it, it does. And you know, back to your point about the media commissions, um, it wasn't a perfect arrangement. And in today's fragmented world of media, um, there's problems if you reintroduce that today. But I, I think what it did do, it took the focus off um, what things cost. And agencies and, and marketers were able to focus on the work a little bit more. Mm. Um, and it, I, I believe that uh, uh, the work was actually better because the commission covered a lot of, of, of what the agency was doing and the marketer didn't have to worry about, well, how much is this going to cost me? If, I, um, if, I wanna, if I'm not happy with these two concepts, I want another three concepts. Um, how much is that going to cost me? That's a question that marketers need to, to ask today. Yeah. Back then, they didn't have to. Yeah. Um, uh, no, no, go on. Oh, uh, only because uh, we see that a lot. You know, back in the commission days, there was never any conversations with about money. You know, uh, you just have to watch any episode of Mad Men. They win a new piece of business. There's no discussion about money because it was all covered by the commission and the service yeah. fee. Whereas now... Almost everything that a client asks for, there's a financial implication. You know, before the the commissioner's service fee covered all sorts of potential sins, and you could argue that agencies weren't particularly efficient in what they did because they were getting this stream of money coming from from those sources. But today, it's much more transactional because everything a client asks for, the agency in many ways has to make sure they're getting paid for. It must be one of the challenges as a finance director. Oh, an enormous challenge. And I think the, the issue there stems from the fact that when you're dealing with a creative product, which is by its very nature subjective, how do you put a price on that? And so what agencies have done uh, perhaps to their detriment now, is 
well, let's charge a premium or, or a fair price, but let's try and get a premium for the implementation, for the production work. Mm. And we'll discount the creative work. Uh, or we won't, if the creative is going to cost X amount of money, um, which seems high and the client might not go for that, that's all right, we'll subsidise that with the implementation work. Because we believe that the creative product is worth X, but it's very difficult to um, substantiate that. It's very difficult to, to convince a marketer that that's what it's worth because it's intangible. Mm. When you are making stuff, when you're actually making an ad, it's much easier to, to price that to make your profit. Yeah, and also because at the end of that is something tangible, they get an ad or they get whatever. Exactly. But Nick, I never understood, why do you think the industry went from commissions and, and service fees to time and cost? You know, because this whole thing about, you know, it, it, it is an accounting mentality. Accounting firms charge time and cost. Uh, lawyers charge time and cost. Where, where do you think the thinking was that agency should be time and cost? Look, I think it stemmed from when uh, a client, I would imagine it happened in the United States, uh, a large FMCG client probably said to uh, the, the two or three agencies that they were pitching their business, said, look, understand that this is the model that you've been working on for all this time, but we're spending three, $400 million with you potentially uh, a year um, we need to get our costs down. Um, so I need you to come up with a, a, a way that is still going to make you money, but isn't going to cost us 10% and 7.5%. Yeah. I think that's where the conversation started. And so the agency in that instance is happy to do that because the volume is just so great that unless they completely messed it up, there's no way they couldn't make a profit from it. Uh, then the uh, client is happy because they've saved 25% potentially out of making the numbers up on uh, what they would have paid under the old arrangement. So, or more. Or potentially. Yeah. And so I think that's great in the um, when you're dealing with a big client. In, in my experience working in multinationals in Australia, Australia is a very small market with lots of competition, as we just said. And quite often when you get these global clients uh, from New York or from London or from Paris, the deal has been done with those big Northern Hemisphere markets in mind. And, um, you know, let's use um, media as an example. The uh, client and the uh, head agency head office may have uh, negotiated the equivalent of, let's say, 2% of the spend yeah. to be the agency fee. That might be great in New York where they are spending uh, $500 million a year but in Australia, where the spend is seven or eight or nine million, uh, it's very difficult to, yeah. for the Australian agency to, to make a profit on that. Um, great for New York, not so good for, uh, for, for this market. Um, so that's where I think that model, whilst in theory it sounded good, let's go, I'll go away from uh, the commissions to a, a, the time and cost uh, arrangement. Great in the large markets potentially, but not so much on the small markets. And my problem with it is that it is very much about paying people to do things. So, you know, you pay people to do, you know, put together paperwork for your legal case, or you pay accountants to do the compliance accounting or, you know, to ensure that you're not exposed somewhere on your tax. 
But how do you apply hours to things like coming up with a new idea or developing a new strategy or something like that? It really is more about, to your point earlier, about the execution. It's much easier to justify hours on an execution than it is to justify the hours that it takes to actually come up with a new idea. You can't because you know, how, how long does it take to come up with a new idea? Um, you know, there's a, a great video, I can't remember the name of the, uh, it's on YouTube somewhere, can't remember the name of the design agency that came up with a logo for a big um, financial services firm. And uh, I think the fee that they quoted was a, a million dollars. It's a big design and rebrand. And the designer who came up with it said that uh, she actually drew it on a notepad in the briefing meeting. Yeah. And wanted to show them, but her boss had to say, no, 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 let's, let's put that down for a minute. <laughs> Back in the office, they talked about, I, the boss said, I think that's great. I think you've nailed it. That's, that's the logo. But we need to drag this out for a few weeks yeah. to, to, to justify our million dollar fee. Where in actual fact, the justification of the million dollar fee is the branding and the awareness and the intellectual property that the uh, company derives from having that iconic, now iconic logo. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but convincing businesses, convincing clients that that's uh, justifiable is, is, is often difficult because uh, to your earlier point about the... Um, agency getting paid on the outputs so or the implementation, it's something tangible that you can see. And as, as human beings, I think we just automatically, oh, well, um, Fred has spent uh, 30 hours on this job and Judy spent 50 hours on this job. I can understand that because I work hard. I know what 50 hours work looks like. Uh, it's much easier to, uh, I think, for, for, for many clients, many agencies as well, when they're uh, uh, quoting these, uh, these fees to think like that in terms that they can um, tangibly understand. Yeah. And I wonder whether that drives the behaviour where it's an intangible output, like a strategy that agencies typically do the you know, 100 or 200 slide deck to somehow justify the value or the creatives come up with, you know, 57,000 executions to show the client of the idea, the one idea, as somehow to show evidence of industry to justify the fee. I'm sure that that goes on every single day, absolutely. And Nick, particularly from a finance perspective, doesn't the hourly rates and the retainer models drive the accounting into more sort of cost recovery? mode rather than as a way of trying to establish profit than it is about creating value and getting paid for it? It does. You, you end up measuring the wrong thing because if, if you're having conversations with clients about, um, well, we know that we said this was going to take 100 hours, but then the brief changed. So the initial 100 hours that we spent is now we've got to put that aside. That doesn't count anymore because we've got to start again. So we need another 100 hours to... to to come up with a concept for the new brief that's changed, um, that's the wrong conversation. The conversation should be around about, uh, well, this is the work that we've done and this is why we've done it and this is how we think, um, you're saying this to the, uh, the agency, saying this to the marketer, this is how we think this is going to drive value for, for your brand. I'm sure that conversation gets had, but if you're spending all your time doing the um, housekeeping on 
uh, trying to argue over hours, you, you're missing out on valuable opportunity to, to, to actually do what's important and talk about what's important, not about what's not important. And, and this uh, reliance on hours, because I always laugh when an agency pulls out their Excel spreadsheets and starts showing me all the hours that have done, and I go, where did these come from? And they go, timesheets. Because you, know, you have to remember I was a creative for 15 years. I do. And I would do my timesheets maybe once a week if I was lucky, maybe once a month. I wasn't doing 15-minute increments as, you know, the discipline that the other categories like, you know, accounting and lawyers, you know, they have a discipline of billing on 10 and 15-minute increments. Yeah. For a start, there's no... So that must, be a fr- that must be frustrating. Well, for a start, there's no such thing as a 15-minute job. Um, so the 15-minute increments always frustrate me. Um, 30 minutes minimum if, if you are going to go down the timesheet route. Um, but For agencies, because right. lawyers do 10 minutes. Yeah. I, I phoned one and I ended up getting three units for sending me an email, half an hour to write an email. It, crazy. I, I don't know how they can uh, uh, justify that. They've got the timesheets behind it, I suppose. Um, but uh, my, my point is that, yes, it is. it does end up being a, a cost recovery um, calculation. And, and ultimately, anything in an agency where, where 60 70% of um, your income is going to staff costs, you need to recover those costs. Absolutely. But the counting of hours is... I don't think it's the right way of going about uh, trying to, to, to justify the price that you're charging because, as I said before, you just end up focusing on the wrong conversations. It takes people's time away from doing what they actually need to be doing to, to move the client's business forward and potentially encouraging inefficient behaviour in the agency. If they're getting paid for a number of hours, as soon as the clock's ticking, why, why would I stop? In my example earlier about coming up with the logo in the briefing meeting and then that design agency um, spreading the process out over a few weeks to try and justify their fee, that's counterproductive. If the logo's right, give them the logo a week later and, and then they've got three or four or five weeks more with that logo in market doing what they needed to do rather than, than trying to justify the million-dollar fee. The, 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 the benefit that the client gets from the fee is, is where the value lies, not in the amount of work that the agency has done to get there. Yeah. And look, in the way you were talking about it then, I, I was starting to hear, and I get this a lot from agencies, they start saying, oh, you think we should be like consultants, you know, like the management consultants. But the management consultants come in, define a problem, put a value on the problem, and then build to a sort of commensurate with solving the, the value of that problem, either realising the value or mitigating the, the loss or whatever. They they find a value equation that they then plough the, the resources onto and then charge the big fees, right? Yeah. Whereas agencies don't operate like that. Yeah, no. And marketers, a lot of marketers don't operate like that. Marketers are very rarely sitting there with their budget saying, we're going to grow this business by you know, 10% and the value of that is X and therefore that's why we're spending this amount of money to actually get that growth. 
they they think of it as contributing, but not actually cause. That there's no one willing to say there's a cause and effect there. So it turns the agency into a cost centre anyway. Yeah, it, it's you're you're exactly right, and the reason that that continues to be perpetuated is placing a value on what a creative agency in particular, but also a media agency, placing a value on the contribution to the client's business is very hard to do. And the, the, the agencies that I've seen and I've read about that do this well, um, they're prepared to take a punt on their uh, capabilities and the quality of their work. Uh, the best agencies will say, look, if this doesn't work, don't pass. Yep. Don't pass. And so there's no risk, therefore, to the marketer. Perhaps they've may have wasted three months um, getting a campaign that's not working, but there's, there's really no risk to the client in that scenario. Well, no financial risk. No. And so uh, those agencies that are prepared to do that uh, are able to move the conversation much more towards... This is the amount of money that we believe, uh, well, this is the impact that we believe that the, the campaign is, is, is going to have on your business. And the value that we ascribe to that is X. Mm. And so we want a number that is commensurate with that value. That's our price. Yeah. If we don't achieve that, then you don't pay us that. Um, you know, perhaps it's not an all or nothing approach. It's uh, if, if, if it doesn't work and it completely bombs, you don't pay us anything. If it sort of works, then you pay us a little bit. If it really yeah. works, you pay us a that. sliding scale. Exactly. Yeah. Or, and, and I've also seen agencies where they go, here's our base cost. This is where you're barely covering our cost. And all we're willing to put every bit of profit and even some of, you know, most or some of our overhead on the fact that this is going to work. You know, and to me, that actually demonstrates that term that agencies love to throw around with their clients, but very rarely live to, and that is a partnership. You know, yes. actually putting yourself so you've got skin in the game. But I know a lot of agencies don't have that confidence because they start using excuses like, well, we don't control everything. You know, we don't have control over distribution and, and things like that. So, you know, and after all, advertising is only a small part of them. Yeah. And they start diminishing the very role that they take. Exactly. And I think that's the problem. And I understand it, particularly. And, and the, the agencies that do do that well are generally the owner-operator agencies where the proprietor decides that that's the way that we're going to play this and uh, it's it's on him if 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 uh, they never get paid whereas the multinationals can't do that the no. the ceo of a multinational network cannot make that decision because um potentially there's there's legal liability um for uh for going as fiduciary duty and of course those agencies continually want their um, markets to deliver more and more and more every year and uh, you can't do that if you're potentially uh, giving up a significant chunk of your income mm. uh, on those sorts of uh, performance-based yeah. arrangements. So there's, there's a, there's a, I'm, I'm sure you, there's a balance there, yeah. but uh, well, it's I'm very difficult you, to, to, to find. Yeah, Nick, I'm glad you brought up performance-based because, you know, it's an area that a lot of people talk about, but we've had some real issues getting that across the line. Uh, it, it's happened a few times, but some of the, the traps that we fall into, and one of them is marketers. 
are often not able to enter into a true performance-based payment system, fee system. And the reason is, going back to something I mentioned earlier, is they have a budget, you know. And if suddenly the uh, campaign exceeds and they sell hundreds or thousands or millions of more items, yes, the company makes a lot more revenue, but the budget doesn't increase to actually cover the fee to be paid to the, the agency. And suddenly you're having a conversation with the CMO that says, why don't we go to the CFO and see if we can get that part funded out of COGS, out of costs of goods sold. And the CMO, you see them, they, their faces glaze over because they're going, you want me to what? I get a budget. Why would I want to even raise the possibility that marketing is a cost of goods sold? It's funny you say that because uh, I remember working with a client at an agency where the CEO um, was did actually come um, from the marketing team, uh, promoted as, from a CMO into a CEO. And he was able to make the decision that marketing is going to be a part of cost of goods sold. Mm. It is going to be variable based uh, on uh, how much we are able to sell or not sell. And therefore, it was a relatively easy conversation to get a performance-based mm. bonus Absolutely. Uh, into that client because, uh, as you said, it didn't need to be budgeted for because if the agency exceeded expectations and the campaign exceeded expectations, the money was going to be there. Yeah, rather than this locking it in as a budget. I mean, I'm sure they still budgeted. Yeah, they would do a projection of uh, sales and then the percentage that would be funding it. So they would have a baseline. You can't just go into the start of the year going... We're going to get paid, you know, I'll have as much money to spend as I sell. Well, I think it's also, I mean, when, when, you, when you are looking at including marketing as a, as a line in that cost of goods sold, it, it's, you need to factor everything that goes into that line. Of course. Um, when marketing and advertising got put into overheads, I'm not quite sure when. Um, certainly in my studies, uh, marketing was always part of uh, cost of goods sold. It, it, if you're a manufacturer, you need your raw materials and you need somewhere to make it and you need machinery to make it with and some people to manage the work the machinery. And then you needed some money per unit to sell the, the thing. So um, all through my uh, uh, educational career, it was always part of COG. So I don't know when that changed, but yeah. it, it does lead to the problem that you were uh, described. And also um, going back to the, you know, as a finance person within agencies, when you're constantly looking at costs and managing costs and cost recovery, is it then hard to switch your mind into growth for the agency? Because I'm wondering why agencies primarily look at growth strategies around acquiring new customers, new clients, you know, pitching for business. When in actual fact, businesses that are run with a very strong financial strategy would be looking for growth in other areas, wouldn't they? They would. I think from an agency perspective, it's how much can you diversify what you're doing. So if you have a, a remuneration model that is purely based around selling head hours, which is effectively what we've been talking about, the only way you can increase your revenue is to sell more head hours. And the only way you can sell more head hours is to put on more people. And the only way you can afford to put on more people uh, is to have get more new demand. business. Yeah. And, you know, whether that's from existing clients or uh, every agency worth their salt has a, a new business acquisition strategy, um, 
that's the only way you can do it. Now, to get away from that cycle, you need to be able to diversify your income streams and perhaps it is um, punting a little bit more of your income on uh, performance and, 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 and value-based arrangements if yeah. you can. Getting clients to agree to that is difficult as we've already talked about, but that, that's, that, that does need to be part of the strategy. But also, what is it that we can uh, potentially, um, what intellectual property do we have that is unique enough that we can package it up Mm. Uh, and sell it to people that aren't our clients yep. uh, and get an income stream from that where the work's already been done um, but we're just getting a, a, a recurring revenue stream from, from selling that, uh, that, that product based on that intellectual property or whatever it is. Um, I, I've worked in a few agencies that do have that strategy yep. but it's very difficult to implement particularly when you've got the grind of uh, keeping clients happy and, and uh, as I said there's the new business acquisition strategy as well. That just takes a, a lot out of uh, any agency, particularly today where there's a talent shortage and it's hard to, to, to get and keep and expensive to get and keep good people. Yeah. Um, a lot of those alternative remuneration or uh, income streams get put on the back burner. Yeah, absolutely. While you are talking about that, it made me think about you know, the number of times agencies have explained to me that they can't embrace the technology to automate a lot of production because they get paid by the hour. And that if suddenly it's a piece of technology doing the work, how do they justify the hours? It's a bit of short short-sighted approach, isn't it? It is. And the reality is that the way that technology has moved on, even in the last five years, that we talk about the, the number of agencies that there are because the um, barriers to entry are so low. What used to happen, the production side of things, there used to be a significant um, barrier to entry around cost. It was expensive to, to, to buy all the equipment that you needed mm. to, to have a Good production money. facility. Not anymore. Yeah. And so in my mind, um, as more people are able to do that more cheaply because they have been able to automate it and they're perhaps not charging by the hour, they're simply charging by the output. If, if a client is unable to do that, and I know a lot of the multinationals in particular set up production hubs to try and do that, um, mm. sometimes in low-cost offshore markets as well, that's not what agencies should be doing, in, in mm. my opinion. I think the agency should let the implementation primarily be done by someone else. Yeah. What agencies are good at and why advertisers still need agencies is because of their strategic, their creative thinking. And so, which they don't charge for. Which they don't charge for. And that's the corner that a lot of agencies have backed themselves into is now all of a sudden you separate the, the implementation from the, the thinking mm. and it's very difficult then to make up the money that you haven't been charging for, for the, the strategy and the creative that you've been having subsidised by the production, it's very difficult to make up that gap. Yeah. And uh, a lot of agencies don't know how to do that and a lot of uh, clients aren't prepared to pay for it necessarily because, well, hang on, I've been, uh, I've been paying X for this for the last five years and now all of a sudden you, you want to charge me 50% more. I accept the fact that I've moved all the production over here, but uh, what has that got to do with uh, what I pay for the, uh, the, the strategy and the, and the creative? Um, yeah. And it's very hard to come back from that. Yeah. 
But I'm even talking about uh, companies I talk to that have uh, you know taken uh, AI and built it into the agency process. So you know, uh, developing reports, uh, processing huge amounts of data into formats that can you know, go into you know things like briefing and and reports back to clients. Yeah, you know, a lot of those labour-intensive agency things that would just fill up a retainer very quickly can now be automated. And yet they say the biggest obstacle they have is the agency justifying, and it's not even capital expense because they're all SaaS solutions, but justifying that cost and how to recover that cost because in their mind it becomes part of the overhead because it's no longer a human resource and out time and, and cost or yeah. head, head rates. You know? So it just seems to me that from an accounting and business point of view, agencies have become almost in this rut of thinking that their business is selling people's time. Yeah, you're right. But I also think that clients play a part in that too because that's what they're used to. And as I said earlier, it's very easy uh, for clients to, to, to understand, okay, well, I've got three people over here and that's a junior and that's a mid-person, that's a senior person and I'm paying a sliding scale for per hour for, for what they're doing, I understand all that. Um, and it's a lot easier for them to, to, to then extrapolate that into, well, I feel as though I'm getting value for money. Yeah. When they're just thinking about the cost, not actually thinking about the output. Yeah. And, you know, it may well be that the agency just needs to accept that for the, the sorts of, activities you've just been talking about, well, maybe I can't get a big chunk of retainer, but I'm not going to lose that income stream completely. I yeah. just, if I tell the client that we're going to generate these reports for you weekly, it used to take Sue um, a whole week to do them. So you were paying $50,000 yep. a year. Well, now you're only going to pay $20,000. Yeah. And uh, the agency... Obviously, it doesn't have to have Sue anymore because Sue's not doing it. Yeah. Um, but the, the conversation with the client needs to, to be around, you're not going to get it for nothing because uh, we are still producing something that's of value to you. We yeah. just need to agree what the appropriate price for it is. Yeah, that's right. It becomes a pricing issue, yeah. not a head, at, head rate. Exactly. Uh, but so, so yeah, it's about changing or getting yourself out of that rut. It's about moving to a mindset about the value you create. And it also, you know, embracing this technology is going to future-proof your agency anyway because if you don't embrace this technology, someone else will and come along and go, well, we can do your account for 30000 a year less because we've got a better way of doing all those reports. There's a great analogy. I don't know if it's true or not that I've heard a couple of times. I hope it is that... Uh um, Steve Jobs said to his exec team at Apple, all the designers, um, we need to come up with a phone and it's going to do this, 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 this and this. And the, I guess the person that managed the iPod division said, you, you can't do this. This is going to kill the iPod. <laughs> and Steve Jobs said, well, yes, probably, but if we don't do it, someone else will. Exactly. So I'd rather we kill it than one of our competitors kill it. And so your point is spot on that agencies uh, need to accept the fact that their overall income for these things might suffer, but if they don't do it, one of their competitors will. Yeah. And uh, need it, 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 I always found it funny that agencies 
don't embrace technology like technology like so many other industries do. Um, but we just talked about the reason yeah. why. But well, some, there is, is a financial, there's a cultural, you know, I mean, this is why the, this conversation is so useful because I think there's a cultural aspect, but there's also a financial aspect in that the, all of the networks have fallen into this trap of reporting on things like, you know, billings and not ever talked about profit. You know, they don't get to profit until they've consolidated it all up to one number for the annual general report for the listed entity. Yeah. But all of their, you know, they could be hemorrhaging profit all over the world as long as they manage to make it at the top there. Yes. And as we know, that behaviour has driven things that are at worst unethical and potentially, you know, uh, illegal in some cases. Yeah. I wanted to go back to um, the independence because, you know, there is a real trend towards marketers asking about independent agencies as, as compi- compared to holding companies or, or network agencies. And one of the things that I've found really interesting is a lot of marketers are much more aware of the network fee that their network agencies are paying. In fact, I had a client only a couple of months ago say, I don't want any network agencies because I'm not going to lose. And I think they said 15%. And I'm sure it varies depending on the network. I've heard numbers of like 8% up to 15%. That a local office has to pay as part of being part of the network. Yeah. Now that immediately takes 15, let's say it's 15% or 10% off the top line. It must make it incredibly difficult because you're behind the eight ball before you even start you know, working towards profit. Well, it does, but to, to, to me, the most important thing is the client's perception of the value of the money that they're paying. And if the perception already is, well, uh, this network agency's price is already overinflated uh, because I know of the, the fees that end up, management fees that end up going back to head office, that's not a good starting point because automatically that client is thinking about the wrong thing. Mm. What they should be thinking about is what is the work that I need done? What is the value of that to my business? And what value do I place on the money that I'm going to pay the agency. Now, it may well be a premium that includes 15% um, network management fees, but more often than not, it's not because you can get potentially uh, equally as good thinking um, and uh, practitioners at an independent cheaper than you can uh, from the network. Well, and that could be all well and good if the client was a network themselves and using a network agency to you know to get that coordination. But when it's a single market client and they know that the agency pays even on their fees a network fee, right? And then and and you know it was it's a nice you know thing to say that it's all about the price, but they'll be running a pitch because procurement's part of it. And they've got two independent agencies and a network agency, and the network's coming in at 10, 15% more. What's the first thing procurement are going to do? Well, they're going to ask for the uh, the price to be matched. Yeah, and when they bring that down, the the network fee doesn't go away. So now, as the CFO of that network agency, you're going to be resourcing it with effectively 10 to 15% less money in the kitty to pay for the resources. Yes which means that you're going to have to buy people that are cheaper so they're maybe less capable or less experienced to fulfil those roles. Yeah, or working uh, harder. 
or working longer hours and not getting paid for their, you know, their overtime. And this is why I think the industry, from my personal perspective, is I find that the advertising industry spends far too much time talking about the things they do, like creativity and generating ideas on long-term brand value. But what it needs to do is to wake up to the fact that they are a business and they need to start getting much more commercially savvy about how they sell their services. Yep. What do you think? Oh, I, you're, again, 100%. It is difficult, though, because uh, particularly, and uh, I'm certainly not uh, justifying the, the, uh, the way that those agencies go about their business, but um, there needs to be income coming in. Yeah. When you've got... Uh, a, a big rent cost, you've got the agency network fees that you're talking about, uh, potentially a lot of uh, highly priced or highly paid um, administrative staff okay. that aren't recoverable from clients and you've got an HR director, you've got yeah. a, all these things. Um, it's much easier sometimes to cut the price to win the client than it is to say, mm, actually, no, um, this is our price. We believe that what we're charging is, irrespective of the network fees and all those other overheads, irrespective of that, we believe that this is a premium price and it's justifiable because of the people that are gonna be working on your business, their track record, the uh, work that you're gonna get, the results that you're gonna get is worth paying that. And it's very difficult to say no mm. and uh, potentially walk away from a, million dollar revenue client yeah. um, than it is to, okay, well, it's not million dollars, it's uh, it's it's now 650000 but we'd rather 650000 than nothing. Yeah. Um, but you can only do that once or twice. If you do that three or four or five times, You're that's, when you end up, nothing. that's when you end up in, 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 in trouble. And and so procurement people often don't understand this. They, they say to me all the time, why would an agency negotiate a fee that was not profitable? And I say to them, it's because they want your business. They're not that interested in your money. Yeah. The business, having you on the wall is much more important than actually making a profit. Is that a fair assessment? In a lot of cases, it is, yes. Yeah. Sad, isn't it? It is. I mean, and it depends on the agency as well. I mean, we all know who the, um, the hot network agencies are at the moment. And maybe they are more likely to say no because people want to work with them because... They've got a track record um, of working for the clients that they have. The agencies that are potentially struggling from a, a product standpoint are less likely to say no mm -hmm. and are more likely to, to acquiesce to what procurement want because they need the business. Yeah. Hey, Nick, it's been terrific uh, catching up and it's great having you back uh, here at Trinity P3. I'm Thank really you. enjoying uh, having you on board and uh, helping our clients and their agencies uh, work out what I call a sustainable agency fee. Let's work towards that. My pleasure. Thank you. And one last question before we go. Of all the agencies you've worked with, which one was the most profitable? Mm -hmm.